High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. You must Welcome to the final episode of our ongoing series, Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today's storyteller is Cassie DaCosta. Cassie is an entertainment writer for The Daily Beast, and she lives in Ojai, California. And she's with me here in the recording studio in Hollywood. Cassie is going to help us close this season by talking about a star who is still very much with us. Cassie, tell us, what made you want to write about Vanessa Williams? She's the first Black woman to win Miss America in 1983. And so there's this entire framework around how we think about Black beauty just within the Black community. And then nowadays it's become a more widespread conversation. So I wanted to talk about beauty in the 20th century in Hollywood in a way that would connect all of these ideas and also help explore a little bit of who um, Vanessa Williams is as a public figure and how the start of her fame is connected to the present and how that kind of speaks to the range of conversations that have unfolded about Black beauty and Hollywood. You noted that Vanessa Williams was the first Black woman to win Miss America. Um, which, of course, makes her an anomalous figure. 
But in your piece, you also tie her to some of the stars of the past before her. And then I, I wonder, like, do you see her as being sort of an influential figure on anybody today? That's a good question. I speak a lot about respectability when I talk about Vanessa Williams, because it was the, the idea that Black people, and especially Black women, needed to present themselves in a sort of impossibly perfect mode. And not only in terms of perfection, but also in terms of morality, was really pervasive and accepted at that time. And now, because that's not so much in play, there are different questions about empowerment and strength. I don't know if there are any direct lineages from Vanessa Williams, but I'm sure there are a lot of Black female stars who are influenced by her fame and poise, let's say, because she was a figure who even after Scandal, really kind of kept together a tight image and managed to sort of endear herself to a larger audience. Join us, won't you, as Cassie DaCosta tells us the story of Vanessa Williams. Like virtually all of the Black female stars able to capture the 20th century Hollywood limelight, from Dorothy Dandridge to Etta James to Diane Carroll to Vanessa's contemporary, Whitney Houston, Williams has not only had to be beautiful and charming, but a fiercely gifted, versatile performer, able to back up her skills with yet more skills. For Black women actors specifically, there has historically been a virtually non-existent margin for error. You have to be better than the best. But Williams's rise to Hollywood is also tied up in a world many Black women, no matter how talented or beautiful, were unlikely to find themselves in at the time, the beauty pageant industry. Investigating how Williams was able to become a representative of Black beauty, not just to Black communities, but to white ones too, reveals the parts of her story full of fairy tale, scandal, glamour, and deception that tend to elude the typical constructions of the Hollywood success narrative. When Vanessa Williams won the Miss America pageant in 1983, she wore a delicately tussled and voluminous bob, a glittery lavender dress with poofs at the shoulder and the hem of the skirt, and a bright, fixed, straight-toothed smile. Her eyelids batted as if she was fighting back tears, but as she accepted the trophy, she did not cry. She was the first Black woman to win the Miss America pageant, which, at that point, had run for over 60 years, but had allowed Black women to compete for only 33. This was not just her moment, but the moment when, perhaps, Black beauty, or a version of it, would go mainstream with the potential, once and for all, to take Hollywood by storm. As Vanessa walked up to the presenters to accept her crown, she appeared incredulous. And she was. 
not because of her blackness exactly, but because of her rebelliousness. In her day-to-day life, the 20-year-old smoked weed, drank, and had sex out of wedlock, subverting much of the respectability Miss America was expected to represent. She was a bad girl in a respectable woman's trappings, with barely a clue how she arrived there, glittering on stage. Still, the moment was bigger than her. The Miss America pageant began in 1921 as the Intercity Beauty Contest, essentially a marketing scheme associated with Atlantic City summer tourism. The pageant was eventually canceled in 1928 after receiving too much bad press. Both religious and women's groups objected to the revealing outfits contestants paraded around in, with the former believing them to be indecent and the latter considering the costumes demeaning. Ironically, as historian Kimberly A. Hamlin has explained, beauty pageants were a surprisingly effective tool of suffragettes, who launched events depicting women as equal members of society who had contributed significant gains throughout history. Hamlin argues that the Miss America pageant was a conservative course corrective to the advances made by the women's movement. The Atlantic City pageant, quote, did not celebrate women's history, solidarity, or new opportunities, nor did it encourage feelings of liberation or agency among participants. Perhaps not so coincidentally, the year Miss America began was the year after women won the vote. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, it's taking forever to close the books, Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com remember. That's netsuite.com remember to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite dot com slash remember. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
After its cancellation in 1928, the Miss America pageant resumed in 1935, when Leonora Slaughter became director. Slaughter added a rule to the books that, quote, contestants must be of good health and the white race. This had not been the case previously. Native American contestant Norma Smallwood won the pageant in 1926. Under Slaughter's rule, the pageant ran counter to the 1920s flapper culture that had been taking white society by storm in the cities. Miss America was meant for good white girls and sought to exclude the influence of the poor black people of the urban ghetto who were already shaping much of America. As historian Zydea Hartman has put it, quote, the flapper was a pale imitation of the ghetto girl. Where poor black girls authored their own transgressions, crafting lives more imaginative than their own often harsh realities, flappers, seeking to rebel from their comparatively staid lives, copied their transgressions from their black contemporaries. Miss America, then, was a repudiation by the anti-flapper establishment of the black girl as any kind of influential or empowered figure. In fact, other minorities were allowed to participate. Latina and Asian women were allowed to compete, and Bess Meyerson, a Jewish contestant, would win the pageant in 1945. So only Black women were shunned by this great American marketing event, a patriotic showcase of white, virginal beauty on a dazzling national stage. Slaughter's rule was taken off the books in 1940, but Black women wouldn't start competing in Miss America until the 1970s. As a result of their exclusion, in 1968, Miss Black America was born. This pageant structure was similar to Miss America's, with talent, interview, and swimsuit competitions, but with an important distinction in tradition that continues on today. Miss Black America is, at its core, more than a beauty pageant. It is also a celebration of representations of Black identities, from traditional Afro hairstyles, to Black American social dance, to African heritage and more. African-American studies scholar Valeria Felita Kinlock writes that the Miss Black America pageant was a product of the civil rights era and Black power movement of the 1960s, which included the Black is Beautiful campaign celebrating Black aesthetics and heritage. As a young woman, Oprah Winfrey was crowned Miss Black Tennessee and competed in, though did not place in, the 1971 Miss Black America pageant. But Vanessa Williams did not choose the Miss America pageant over Miss Black America. Miss America chose her. To some extent, Vanessa's mother, Helen, may have willed it to happen. People would find this really hard to believe, but my actual birth announcement that my mother sent out in 1963 said, here she is, Miss America. Kind of weird, huh? (laughs) In her memoir, co-written with her mother, Williams explains that a board member of the Miss America pageant, Bill Harmond, saw her perform at a rehearsal for a play at Syracuse University, where she was studying theater, with the goal of getting on Broadway. He was fixated, and believed she had the potential to win Miss America, even with no pageant experience. Why did Vanessa, of all young Black women, stand out? Before this, Williams, who is light-skinned with blue eyes and light brown hair, 
was picked out of a crowd by a photographer who commented that she had, quote, a great exotic look that Europeans love. Vanessa was born to Helen and Milton Williams, who are both Black. She grew up in Chappaqua, New York, in a white, affluent neighborhood where she was often the only Black girl in sight. In her memoir, Williams describes the typical racism experienced by middle-class Black girls in majority white communities. Exclusion, sexualization, being paired up with the other minority in your class. The memoir, however, misses aspects of what may have set Williams apart as she matured into early adulthood. Her potential to be accepted by the white people who surrounded her due to the comparative lightness of her skin. Williams does acknowledge the harsh criticism she received from the Black community, including that she wasn't, quote, representative of a true African-American because of her lighter features. Williams commented that she was more hurt by those words than by the racist hate mail she received from white people. But what many of her Black critics were responding to, no matter how wrong-headedly in the moment, was the very real specter of colorism, both within the Black community and mainstream society. Dark-skinned Black women were still not seen as beauty queens by the mainstream public. Even after years of the Miss Black America pageant, the Black is Beautiful campaign, and the success of dark-skinned female performers like Diane Carroll, Cicely Tyson, and Grace Jones. When many people spoke of Black beauty, what they really meant was that light-skinned, exotic look, as Williams herself was praised for. Winning Miss America, while not part of Williams' career plan of becoming a Broadway star, became the initiating moment of her celebrity and ensuing Hollywood career. And losing her Miss America crown, or more accurately, the way she lost it, brought to light a narrative that Williams herself seemed to miss. Vanessa's personal ambition wasn't the only reason for her rebound to fame and status. The scandal also gave an overwhelmingly white Hollywood permission to label her an exotic beauty. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight or flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. 
It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Y-M-R-T. If you were an adult in 1984, you likely remember how it all went down. Not long from the conclusion of her Miss America tenure, unauthorized nude photos of Williams were offered to Hugh Hefner, the owner of Playboy. Hefner said no. He wouldn't take photos that hadn't been released by the models. But Bob Guccione the owner of Penthouse, Playboy's main competition, would. The photos were taken when Williams was a college student with a summer job at a modeling agency, which he found through an ad in the classifieds. It was a scrappy gig that found Williams not only modeling, but also serving as a receptionist and makeup artist for shoots at the agency, which actually turned out to be a registry more of a scheme to get models to pay for portfolios than a company that could get models real jobs. Still, over the summer, Williams and the owner, Tom Chiapel, formed a friendship. Williams writes in her memoir, quote, I'd met his wife and kids. He paid me on time and was respectful. Why shouldn't I trust him? One day, Chiapel asked Williams to do a nude shoot with another woman. He promised her the photos would be tasteful and that her face wouldn't be visible, just her silhouette. Hoping to forge her own path beyond the black middle-class cautiousness preached by her mother, Helen, Williams agreed. Guccione, the penthouse owner who would go on to publish these photos and more nude images of Williams, taken by another photographer, was himself a schemer who achieved success partly by accident. Penthouse became notorious in mid-60s London after Guccione, who grew up in New Jersey, mistakenly sent pornographic images in promotion of the new magazine to the wrong mailing list. Guccione had spent years at seminary, of all places, and according to his New York Times obituary, some of his contacts included, quote, clergymen, schoolgirls, old-age pensioners, and wives of members of parliament. The scandal shot his new publication into relevancy, and Hugh Hefner's Playboy found itself a rival. Guccione, who saw the marketability of transgression, infamy, and brazen missteps, interpreted Williams's original agreement to take the pictures as wholesale authorization for the photos to be used. In fact, Guccione had demonstrated a taste for nude photography and an accompanying distaste for consent. Guccione was also connected to the New York mob, who he allegedly planned to build a casino with, and was being tracked by the FBI. In 1984, on the issue in which the first unauthorized photos of Vanessa would appear on the cover, a nude image of then 16-year-old Tracy Lords would appear in the centerfold. In 1986, the FBI investigated Guccione for knowingly hiring underage models for penthouse shoots. According to FBI records obtained by Talking Points Memo in 2011, 
Guccione was under investigation years before Penthouse's release of the Williams photos for selling nude photographs of, quote, young girls via mail at the rate of $2 for 10. This report emerged a year after Guccione's death. In his prime, the publisher was virtually untouchable. Penthouse reportedly made $14 million from the 1984 issue alone. In July 1984, news of the Penthouse nude photo spread was leaked, and the Miss America organization gave Williams 72 hours to resign from her post, which she did. Much of the American viewing public that was tracking the scandal, which was reported on all the major news networks, renounced Williams, including many Black people who believed Williams had sabotaged the Black community's efforts towards positive representation and respectability. With Williams's win, many felt that Black women now had the chance to be seen outside of the Black community as elegant, accomplished, discreet, and untainted. In fact, from the time of slavery to today, certain Black people often those of relatively greater means or opportunity than other Blacks, have followed a code of respectability, which is to say, they work to be seen as clean, composed, appropriate, and the model of bourgeois morality. Respectability, in this sense, doesn't necessarily mean assimilating fully into whiteness, but at least, hopefully, being seen as acceptable to the white people in power. Sometimes it can function for the Black people who practice and preach it as a way of attaining a version of that power, and at other times, it is an often fruitless attempt to protect oneself from its abuses. Respectability means no sleeping around, no cursing, no slang, no ostentatious display of wealth or shameless admission of poverty, no raggedy hair or bejeweled nails, no quote-unquote made-up names for your children or rap music blasting from your car's sound system, no forgoing college or any chance at institutional prestige, and certainly no nude photos in a pornographic magazine. For her shameful deeds, Williams received hate mail, including a note that said, quote, you're all black scum. According to Williams, her mother Helen who had specifically advised Williams as a teenager to never pose nude, suffered emotionally during the fallout from the scandal. The respectability that Helen had built as a kind of currency and shield for herself and her family had been undone. After the photos were published, Williams prepared a $500 million lawsuit charging Guccione's penthouse for the unauthorized use of her image. Later, she dropped it. As she explained on Oprah's Masterclass show. So I ended up going into a lawsuit against Penthouse Magazine. And while you're, you know, you have to do a deposition and your, your, your lawyers are talking to you about the trial, and this might come up. And he said, uh, you know, uh, by the way, have you ever been with another woman? I said, well, when I was 10 years old, I guess I was molested by uh, an older girl. He said, well, that's going to come out in the trial. So I just want you to know that be, expect for that to come up. And once I knew that not only it's not going to be just about the pictures and Miss America, but it was going to be everything about my life, that's when I said, you know what? I'm done. I don't want to fight. I want to get my life back. I just want to move on. 
And uh, it wasn't up until recently that I told my mom that that was really the reason why I dropped the lawsuit. But back in 1984, in an interview with People magazine, Williams was fired up by the scandal to restore her reputation. She said, quote, I am not a lesbian and I am not a slut. And somehow I'm going to make people believe me. That is the promise upon which Williams shot into the Hollywood scene. The threat of being seen as either lesbian or loose loomed large over Black women hoping to make their mark in the white-dominated entertainment industry. With Williams's decrowning in 1984, Williams's Blackness, according to African-American studies scholar Valeria Felita Kinlock, quote, was quickly reinscribed in social narratives of immorality and erotic desires, and thus, by relinquishing her crown, quote, her identity was disassociated from the protection or safeguard of white femininity guaranteed by the pageant. Now that the path of Eurocentric femininity and virginity was no longer an option, Williams would have to navigate a different route away from the stereotypes typically assigned to Black women. Diane Carroll, one of Williams's idols, whom she would later work with, famously said she wanted to be the, quote, first Black bitch on television and requested that her manager contact producer Aaron Spelling, who would go on to cast her as the wealthy and ruthless Dominique Devereaux in Dynasty. But where Black bitch and diva were minor transgressions still within the arena of respectability for both Black and white audiences, any suggestion of impropriety or homosexuality was not. In the U.S., Black people as a group are no more openly homophobic than whites, but both racism and a desire for what is seen as positive representation contribute to making Black communities' negative reactions to homosexuality feel fiercer and louder. And specifically, amongst upper- and middle-class Black communities— which are more likely to adhere to mainstream social codes in an effort to assimilate, the rejection of Black queerness, which is often seen as immoral and promiscuous, can be intense. And for Black actresses coming up in Hollywood throughout the 20th century, a common move was to hew towards respectable characters whenever possible, especially when most of the roles being offered were of drug addicts and irresponsible mothers. To survive in Hollywood, Williams would have to turn away from her own imaginative attempts at personal freedom, the weed-smoking, premarital sex, and racy photography that defined her youth. In 1997, Williams would go on to star in George Tillman Jr.'s Soul Food, playing Terry, a wealthy, somewhat uppity lawyer. Her most popular role to date is as the magazine executive, former supermodel, and ruthless diva Wilhelmina Slater in the popular television series Ugly Betty. In 2010, she would join the TV series Desperate Housewives as the unpleasant and crazy rich Renee Perry. Both TV characters, like Diane Carroll's Dominique Devereaux, were meant to be beauties, though in each series that beauty was less remarked upon than the character's extravagant behavior. Williams, who trained in theater, music, and briefly pageantry, 
was well suited to take up the diva role. And by doing so, she was able to gain ground in Hollywood. And her lighter features made her more translatable, or readable, by the white audiences the networks were making these shows for. For any actor, playing a villain can be exciting, because it means that you're expected to do more than be a pretty face. But for Black women in Hollywood in the 20th century, working on projects marketed towards audiences that were not primarily Black, the villain or diva role became a constraining trope rather than a path to freedom. For Black actresses, there was a different burden to playing a bad girl than there was for white actresses, who don't have the same concerns about respectability. While television allowed Vanessa to play with her image, Williams's music career is more strongly representative of her efforts to clean that image up, to make a forward march toward success that would satisfy both her and her mother, while allowing her to reclaim a place as an untainted beauty on the national stage. Williams released her first album, The Right Stuff, in 1988. It included hit singles like Dreamin' and He's Got the Look and was nominated for three Grammy Awards, including Best New Artist. Her second album, The Comfort Zone, released in 1991, would feature her greatest hit, Save the Best for Last, and earn her five Grammy nominations. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com sale. And book your free consult today. By the time The Right Stuff came out, Whitney Houston, who was born in the same year as Williams, had released her first two albums, Whitney Houston and Whitney, which both made it to number one on the Billboard charts. Both albums were nominated for the Album of the Year Grammy and two others. With her third album, I'm Your Baby Tonight, from 1990, Houston would turn more keenly to R&B. Houston's incredible musical success would lead to her receiving offers from Hollywood, all of which she refused until 1992's The Bodyguard. After that, she took on a leading role in 1995's Waiting to Exhale. Houston said she accepted the role because it depicted Black women as, quote, both professionals and caring mothers. Her eponymous role in The Preacher's Wife would similarly allow her to play a caring, sympathetic character. Houston received rave reviews for her portrayal of a mildly neglected pastor's wife who befriends an angel played by Denzel Washington. Williams's albums represented a stronger form of transracial address than Houston's did. While Houston's own musical career was tailored alternately to white and black audiences, 
she eventually made the choice to engage more deeply with R&B music, working with producers like Babyface and L.A. Reid, thereby more directly engaging majority Black audiences. While Houston's music is known for its energy and attitude, Williams's music is known for its wholesomeness. It might seem surprising, then, that Williams would take primarily diva roles in her acting career, while Houston would hew towards angelic ones. However, the career choices Williams and Houston each made, or in some cases, had to make, speak not only to their individual priorities as performers and people, but also to the stereotypes that were active in society at the time, and that determine how Hollywood sees and responds to different representations of Black beauty. Sociologist Kay Su Jewell has written about the concept of the quote-unquote tragic mulatto, a lascivious light-skinned woman, a representative of the Jezebel stereotype that overshadowed the lives and personalities of Black women and contributed to discrimination in policy and social programs in the U.S. Williams's scandal represented much more than her individual struggle as a performer. The idea of her sexually tinged transgressions were already written into American racist mythology, much like that of the white woman's propriety and purity. Dark-skinned Black women, of course, were also targets of the Jezebel stereotype, and often with even more negative connotations, as the stereotype casts them as more active, participatory figures of a moral sexuality. Even today, in certain European cities, from Rome to Vienna, a darker-complexioned Black woman or girl walking down the street may be taken for a sex worker, no matter how she dresses or acts, and even if she is not alone. Whitney Houston's decision to pursue angelic, maternal characters in her Hollywood film career spoke to the possibility that society, at some point, would seek to cast her as immoral, dirty, or broken. To some extent, playing the literal preacher's wife inoculated her from this criticism. But in the midst of her struggle with drug use, exactly what she had apparently been carefully sidestepping came back to bite her. From ABC News, this is a special edition of Primetime with Diane Sawyer. Tonight, Whitney Houston. Anorexia? No way. They've written it? No way. Bulimia? No way. That it's because of drugs? No. Uh-uh. Now, granted, you, I partied. But there have been times when I know I was going through a lot of emotional stress and my eating habits were awful. Whitney dying, crack rehab fails. First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. Williams, as we know, very openly strove for greatness after defeat. This narrative, too, has historical precedent. By playing divas, who were always depicted as powerful women, she could claim a more favorable trope than the tragic status that was projected onto her. And at the same time, 
her light features would allow her to receive the benefit of the doubt, with no assumption that her self-advocacy was a sign of cruelty or conniving. Scandal, for her, became a jumping-off point for success. And in many ways, that follows the arc of the Miss America contest in and of itself. In order for purity to shine, darkness must lurk not far away. The young, daring, quote-unquote wayward black girls of the early 20th century who influenced rebellious white girls such as the Flappers were vanguards of self-invention. The refusal of respectability and the ability to reimagine unfavorable conditions in order to build a life is the through line of poor black women's history. For Vanessa Williams, who grew up middle class with access to a good education and surrounded by white people who alternately humiliated, lusted after, and professed to admire her, her own otherness became a path to material gain, no matter the nature of her personal wishes. As Williams worked to restore her reputation for beauty, class, and talent through a multi-hyphenate Hollywood career, Whitney Houston lost herself to the industry's insistence on her redemption, which she never seemed to particularly want. I was surprised to find a tragic coincidence between the two that reaches beyond career and birth year alone. Both Williams and Houston were reportedly molested as children by women. Houston, who reportedly had at least one queer relationship while publicly presenting as a straight woman, let the pain of that abuse fester. In contrast, Williams wrote about it in her memoir, taking a measure of control over the trauma by refusing to bury it. Vanessa Williams's fall as Miss America and rise in Hollywood speaks to the way Black female beauty has been both reviled and commodified, dismissed and exploited by the major institutions performers have looked to for legitimacy. For Williams, the desire to achieve excellence in the face of her downfall, to perfect her image, was not just personal and professional, but demanded by society. Despite all of the challenges she faced, Williams, to date, is the only Miss America winner who has found success in the Hollywood scene of any race. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Cassie DaCosta. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. That's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon. And the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. This is the concluding episode of Make Me Over. We'll be back in a few months with new episodes of You Must Remember This. 
Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.